yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. That was President Roosevelt speaking to Congress the day after Pearl Harbor. But the decision to strike at the heart of America's Pacific fleet was not a decision that the Japanese took lightly. In the years leading up to World War II, Hitler was not the only one looking east for land and resources. From halfway around the world, the Japanese fixed an uneasy and calculating eye across the broad Pacific towards the United States. The driving economic issue was that the island of Japan lacked most of the raw materials essential to sustain a modern industrial economy, including iron, copper, tin, zinc, rubber, and most importantly, oil. These could, of course, be purchased from overseas, but the problem was that this, of course, created a dependency that was intolerable to the Japanese government, especially after we Americans began to impose sanctions and conditions on further sales. At the time, the United States was the world's biggest oil producer, and American oil sanctions meant that Japan had a choice. Either find a new source of oil, or bow to American demands that they withdraw from their war in China. By the 1930s, many Japanese had come to believe that they must choose between accepting Western interference as a price of continued economic growth and foreign policy independence, or forcefully establish economic independence by taking those commodities for themselves. The cultural component of Japanese policy was more nuanced. Japan's unprecedented economic transformation from an isolated, feudal hermit kingdom into an industrial-era great power inside the space of a single lifetime created profound societal challenges. 
the population remained overwhelmingly isolated from the rest of the world, and by the 1930s, society was militarized to a degree which is pretty much unmatched by any country in the world today. In their transition to a great power, Japan wholeheartedly adopted a British-style navy, complete with copycat uniforms, ranks, protocols, and technology. This wholesale adoption paid off with British-style dominance at sea and successive total victories against the Chinese and Russian fleets less than 50 years after opening up to the modern world. Yet, the post-World War I Washington Naval Treaty had consigned Japan to a second-class naval status. The terms of the treaty were unpopular with the Japanese public and new corps of young, fiercely nationalistic junior officers. The officers of the Imperial Japanese Navy split into two opposing factions, the Fleet Faction and the Treaty Faction. The Treaty Faction argued that Japan's already overextended finances could not afford an arms race with the Western superpowers of Britain and America, and they hoped to restore the Anglo-Japanese alliance to counterbalance rising American power across the Pacific. In the 1920s, the Treaty Faction was supported by the civilian government and was predominant. However, the equally restrictive London Naval Treaty of 1930 turned many officers towards the Fleet Faction and its push for military and economic expansion into the South Pacific. As Japanese society and the government militarized in the 1930s, the Fleet Faction gradually gained the upper hand and many of the previous young, aggressive officers began to take their spots among the leadership of the fleet. The ascendancy of the Fleet Faction was complete when on December 29, 1934, the Japanese government gave formal notice that it intended to terminate its participation in the Washington and London Naval Treaties. And with that, Japan began to build a fleet which, they hoped, would conquer the Pacific. One of the very few treaty faction admirals to survive the purges of the ascendant fleet faction was the brilliant rear admiral Isoroku Yamamoto. Yamamoto was a calculating gambler, a visionary, and a fierce realist who had gained profound first-hand appreciation for American industrial strength from his years living in the United States. By contrast, fleet faction admirals dismissed America's material and economic superiority and engaged in an almost magical thinking about how Japanese warrior spirit would overcome the industrial might of the United States. Yamamoto found this holdover a samurai ideology naive. Yamamoto also defied the fleet faction's orthodoxy on the supremacy of battleships. Over the course of his career, he commanded several aircraft carriers and became convinced that carriers would revolutionize naval warfare and render battleships as expensive, obsolete relics of a bygone era. By 1937, Japan was engaged in a full-scale land war against the Chinese Empire, but the Navy kept its gaze fixed firmly to the east. The Japanese military high command made war plans, much like our war plan Orange, for a variety of enemies, which the United States was the most likely and the most dangerous. If the United States did intervene in China, leading to a full-fledged war, the Japanese planned to use airplanes and submarines operating from their island bases in the Pacific to weaken the American fleet as it advanced west to a final Mahanian showdown against the Japanese main battle fleet. To ensure victory in its final showdown, the Japanese built, in secret, a pair of ultimate battleships, one that would dwarf the Bismarck and come in at twice the size of its British and American counterparts. 
wielding 18-inch main guns which could sink any enemy battleship beyond the range of return fire. The Yamoto and Musashi were the pinnacle of battleship design, just as the era of the battleship was closing. By 1940, events in Europe had created an enticing opportunity for Japan. The army's war in China was bogged down, but the German conquests of France and the Netherlands had left the vast and resource-rich colonial holdings of each country ripe for the taking. If only these colonies could be taken, the Japanese military dictatorship reasoned, Japan would have the resources to finish off the Chinese and assert Japan's true place under the sun. The only problem with this plan was the United States. You see, in between these rich and defenseless colonies and mainland Japan was the United States' Philippine colonies. Even if the United States did not declare war in response to Japan's latest aggression, America would still be in the position to control the fate of Japan, which was unacceptable. Since many officers saw eventual war with the United States as inevitable, the logic went that Japan might as well seize the initiative. This convoluted logic chain led to only one conclusion. War against the United States. Yamamoto was appalled by this conclusion, but there was nothing he could do. The minds that mattered were made up. There's nothing we can do now, he said. If those, quote, damn fools in the army insisted on a war against the industrially superior Americans, the only hope was for a quick, sharp war begun with a crippling blow. In January of 1941, Yamamoto began work on what became plans for a raid utilizing all six of Japan's large aircraft carriers against the center of American naval power in the Pacific, Pearl Harbor. While Yamamoto was planning his fateful strike to the east, half a world away in Washington, D.C., President Franklin Roosevelt was by 1940 sitting atop a recently revived United States Navy. The Japanese treaty withdrawal and news from Europe had alarmed Congress enough to authorize some serious spending. The month after the fall of France, panic swept the nation. Would Britain be next? And would the United States after that have to defend the Western Hemisphere? Alone? potentially against an enemy on either coast? With this potential threat in mind, Congress unanimously allocated enough money to almost double the size of the fleet with the Two Ocean Act, which among its 257 authorized ships included 18 aircraft carriers. The size of this fleet buildup had shown what Yamamoto had known all along, that America had the industrial capacity to outbuild Japan many times over, and a war of attrition was hopeless. But since large ships take years to build, the Japanese window of opportunity had narrowed. Their ships had been laid down earlier, and if they could decisively strike after their new ships had been commissioned, but before the massive new American fleet came into being, maybe, just maybe, they could build the buffer they needed to sue for peace. It was a gamble, and the clock was ticking. Secretly assembling all six of Japan's carriers and the greatest concentration of naval air power in history, Admiral Yamamoto's fleet left Japan on November 26, 1941, under strict radio silence. At the same time, smaller Japanese task forces moved south to strike at the resource-rich and practically undefended European and American colonies in the Pacific. On Sunday morning, December 7, 1941, a date which shall live in infamy, the Japanese launched 183 aircraft. Leading the first wave of planes against the seven battleships moored in Pearl Harbor, Commander Fuchida broke Japanese radio silence for the first time since leaving Japan 
to broadcast a predetermined code signal. Tora, Tora, Tora. Using low-flying torpedo bombers and armor-piercing bombs dropped from 10,000 feet in the air, the superbly trained Japanese air crews devastated our unsuspecting battleships. A second wave was met with a little more resistance, but altogether the Japanese sank or damaged 18 ships and destroyed 188 Army and Navy aircraft. The attack caused the death of 2,403 U.S. servicemen, nearly half of them aboard the ill-fated USS Arizona, which sank almost instantly after an unmodified air-dropped battleship shell pierced her forward magazine, setting off a chain reaction of secondary explosions. For the Japanese, it was a total victory. Pre-battle planners had assumed that they would lose two carriers to an American counterattack, which we Americans were in no position to pull off. Instead, for the cost of 29 planes and five midget submarines, the Japanese had crippled the American ability to sortie and stopped their blitzing rampage across the Pacific, which began the next day with Japanese landings across British colonies throughout Southeast Asia. The sole American consolation was that no aircraft carriers were in port that morning. Throughout the first month of the war in the Pacific, the Japanese war machine landed blow after vicious blow against the Allies, with a level of ease which stunned the West and Japanese war planners alike. On December 10th alone, the British battleship Prince of Wales and battlecruiser Repulse were sunk from the air. Japanese bombers destroyed the planes of the US Army's Clark Field in the Philippines while they were still parked on the runway, and Japanese Marines landed on the Philippine Islands. The American commander in the Philippines, General Douglas MacArthur, ignored war plans which called for falling back to prepared defenses in Bataan, and instead tried to meet the invaders on the beaches, which failed and resulted in the loss of most of the defending army's equipment in the subsequent retreat. The Japanese landed troops and scored easy victories in British Malaysia, Borneo, Siam, and Singapore. Hong Kong surrendered on Christmas Day. On the 26th, General MacArthur abandoned Manila, the capital of the Philippines. The Japanese moved into the Dutch East Indies, Indonesia today, and the crucial oil fields with little resistance. The defeats continued unabated as the exquisitely planned Japanese offensives expanded the chain of islands and pockets of Japanese air power with unbelievably few casualties. The first few months of the war can only be described, from the Allied perspective, as a period of defeat and retreat, confusion and loss, death and misery, in the words of historian David Thomas. In just over four months, the Japanese occupied British Malaysia, the Dutch East Indies, American Philippines, Thailand, Burma, the Bismarck Archipelago, and hundreds of smaller islands, thus securing the resource base that they hoped would make them economically secure and militarily invulnerable. And all of this had been achieved with the loss of only two destroyers. The European war had been transformed into a world war, and what was, quite frankly, the fastest conquest in human history. The first, if symbolic, counterattacking victory against the Japanese was the Doolittle Raid. 16 Army B-25B Mitchell medium bombers were launched without fighter escort from the USS Hornet on April 18, 1942. They dropped their loads of bombs on four Japanese cities, including Tokyo, and continued flying east to China, where they hoped to land and from there make their way back to the United States. It had three real purposes. One purpose 
was to give the folks at home the first good news that we had had in World War II. It caused the Japanese to question their warlords. And from a tactical point of view, it caused the retention of aircraft in Japan for the defense of the home islands when we had no intentions of hitting them again seriously in the near future. Those airplanes would have been much more effective in the South Pacific where the war was going on. And I would say that the feeling was get the job done and get the heck out of there. The actual damage done by the raid was minimal. We were 16 airplanes, each carrying one ton of bomb. And later raids, General LeMay with his 20th Air Force sent out 500 planes on a mission, each carrying 10 tons of bombs. You just heard there a snippet of an interview which took place a couple of decades after World War II with then-retired Major General James Doolittle. The Doolittle Raiders, named after their commander, at the time Lieutenant Commander James Doolittle, crash-landed in China, where they were for the most part smuggled to safety. In retaliation, the embarrassed Japanese killed what is probably well over 100,000 Chinese civilians and POWs. The second counterattack took the form of a real battle. Working on an informed guess from a partially broken Japanese code, Admiral Nimitz, who is now the Pacific Fleet Commander, sent a two-carrier task force under Admiral Jack Fletcher to stop the Japanese invasion of Port Moresby, New Guinea, and Tulagi in the southeastern Solomon Islands. These islands were planned as parts of the Japanese defensive perimeter to exhaust the eventual Allied mass counterattack. The Japanese plan, codenamed Operation Mo, included two of their six fleet carriers and a light carrier to provide air cover for the invasion forces under the command of Vice Admiral Inouye. The American carriers Yorktown and Lexington entered the Coral Sea undetected by the Japanese just after the Japanese troops captured the undefended island of Tulagi. On May 4th, three waves of aircraft from the USS Yorktown flew in clear weather over the Guadalcanal Mountains to attack the small Japanese squadron of ships around the island and managed to sink a few minesweepers and transports. The engagement was minor, but both forces, American and Japanese, were now aware that the other was in the area, and began looking. The period before the main Battle of the Coral Sea can be called the Battle of Blunders, since both carrier task forces made serious errors, while at the same time, both were convinced that their naval bombers had done serious damage to the enemy. In reality, neither side did much damage to the other. After almost a full day of bumbling around, an Army B-17 spotted and passed on to Fletcher that the Japanese light carrier was alone and within range. Fletcher pounced on the opportunity and sent 93 planes from Yorktown and Lexington towards the Japanese carrier. Aboard the Lexington and Yorktown, too far from the fight to get real-time radio reports, the mood was taut. Anxious crews crowded around radio rooms waiting for news. Finally. Through the static, the voice of Lieutenant Commander Dixon came through. Scratch one flat top. Dixon to carrier. Scratch one flat top. The 93 planes in the attack wing had swept aside the small Japanese combat air patrol and landed dozens of bombs on the light carrier, setting her on fire and sinking her within minutes. 
It was the first real loss the Japanese had suffered and the first carrier-to-carrier engagement of the war. Victory at last. But the battle wasn't done. The two main Japanese carriers sent out planes to search for their American counterparts with the intent to trap and kill the isolated task force in the Coral Sea. In the air, American planes were getting the better of the Japanese planes, but darkness fell before either side could find and attack the other's carriers. Under cover of darkness, each commander considered a night attack but decided against it, and resolved to finish the other off in the morning. Dawn broke to reveal two almost perfectly matched forces far apart, but still within range of each other's fighters and bombers. This would begin the second day and the main day of battle in the first naval engagement fought exclusively from the air. All four carriers sent out search planes, and both the American and Japanese sides spotted each other and launched attack sorties at roughly the same time. On the American side, dive bombers arrived over the Japanese carriers and circled at 17,000 feet, waiting for the slower and lower torpedo bombers to finish their attack run against the carrier. None of the torpedo bombers got off a hit as American fighters fought off the world-class Japanese fighters nicknamed Zeros, which took off to defend the carrier. Now, diving, the dive bombers dropped their bombs on the flight deck of the exposed carrier. There were two hits, and the flight deck was rendered useless for launching and recovering planes. At almost the exact same time, Japanese pilots began their airborne assault on the Yorktown and the Lexington. The weather was better, and the combat experience Japanese pilots had gained in the past six months of war showed, and their perfectly executed attack. Two airdrop torpedoes hit the port side of the Lexington at the same time that dive bombers hit the flight deck from above, starting fires aboard the ship. The Yorktown was hit as well, although not as badly. With their bombs and torpedoes dropped, the Japanese planes turned around and began their flight back to their carriers, radioing ahead the mistaken report that they had sunk both carriers. Aboard the Lexington, which was listing seven degrees to port by this point, secondary explosions eventually overwhelmed the damage control effort, and an orderly abandoned ship was ordered as fires raged into the sky. With the men and planes from the Lexington recovered, Fletcher left the burning ship to one of his destroyers, which emptied four torpedoes into the empty hull, sending her at last to the bottom. With the engagement over, both sides pulled back, and the Japanese commander called off the invasion of Port Moresby for now, that he could not guarantee the safety of the vulnerable transports. The Battle of the Coral Sea was the first time in the sea war that the Japanese had failed to achieve a military objective, and it was the high watermark of Japanese expansion in the Pacific. The Japanese would never take Port Moresby. The battle had been hard fought, and both the Americans and Japanese had lost one carrier. The American carrier had been bigger, but another Japanese carrier was more badly damaged and had to be sent to Japan for extensive repairs. The remaining Japanese carrier had lost enough of its planes in the past few months of constant war that it was for now effectively out of the fight. This left four operational Japanese fleet carriers, and this was crucial to the operational picture in the next few and most important weeks of the Pacific War. You see, on the same day that the Lexington went down in the Coral Sea, American Signals Intelligence in Pearl Harbor intercepted a coded message which seemed to indicate the creation of a new Japanese battle force, consisting of the four Japanese fleet carriers which had not been engaged in the Coral Sea, a few battleships, and a large escort force. The target of this armada 
was designated in the radio message as AF, which the cryptography team believed was the tiny Midway Atoll, 1,100 miles northwest of Pearl Harbor. To confirm the location of the intended Japanese strike, the garrison at Midway sent an unencrypted radio message that their saltwater evaporators had broken down. Two days later, a Japanese message was intercepted which reported that AF was running out of fresh drinking water, which confirmed the location of the expected Japanese strike. By the end of May, Navy cryptanalysts had full access to Admiral Yamamoto's battle plans, and Nimitz plotted his strategy to take the Japanese by surprise. He assembled three U.S. aircraft carriers, including the hastily repaired USS Yorktown, 300 miles north of Midway, to ambush the unsuspecting Japanese under the command of Rear Admiral Raymond Spruance, who is the namesake of my first ship while I was in the Navy. On the Japanese part, the massed, four-carrier attack on Midway was designed to draw out the American carriers which had escaped the bombardment at Pearl Harbor, solidify Japanese naval supremacy in the Pacific, and give Japan more time to consolidate her conquests. The massive Japanese fleet opened the battle at dawn on June 4th, with an airstrike against the American airfield at Midway. To the Japanese surprise, the Marine fighters were not caught waiting on the airfield, but were already in the air challenging their attackers. The defending planes were easily swept aside by the superior Japanese planes, and the bombers sent to attack the Japanese fleet were also put down without a loss by the Japanese. But there was now a dilemma for the Japanese command. The airfield at Midway was not fully neutralized, and the attack force the Japanese command had been planning on sending in search of the American carriers now had to choose between their original mission and finishing off the Midway airfield. Since the American carriers were still unsighted, the anti-ship bombs were swapped out for high-explosive bombs, and planes were readied for a second attack on Midway Atoll. Only after swapping out all of the bombs did the Japanese receive word that the American carrier force had been spotted 300 miles north of Midway. This presented a timeline challenge in the landing, refueling, rearming, and relaunching of all the planes the Japanese needed for a full-throated attack on the American force. Surely there was enough time. There wasn't. All three American carriers, Yorktown, Enterprise, and Hornet, had begun launching planes at 0700, and through essentially some bad navigation, the torpedo bombers from the USS Hornet arrived first over the Japanese fleet, while the anti-ship munitions were still being re-swapped aboard the Japanese bombers. Torpedo bombers fly at their targets low and slow to drop their torpedoes, making them extremely vulnerable to the agile Japanese Zero fighters, and usually had to rely on friendly fighter planes to keep them safe on their attack run. All alone, without their fighter escort, the bombers' rear seat gunners did their best to fend off the attacking Zeros. But without the cover of friendly fighters, all 15 torpedo bombers were sent spinning into the ocean. Minutes later, more unescorted torpedo bombers from the Enterprise and the Yorktown arrived, and they too were dispatched by the Zeros. Of the 41 torpedo bombers launched by American carriers on that first morning wave, only four made it back to their ships, and none hit an enemy ship with a torpedo. Counting the bombers from Midway, we Americans had now sent 94 planes to attack the Japanese, with all but a handful easily shot down, and not a single hit to show for it. Not exactly an auspicious start to the battle. But here, at last, would come some good news. 
The Japanese ships all lacked radar, meaning that when the Enterprise's Dauntless dive bombers began their 75-degree dive from 20,000 feet up out of the sun at the giant Japanese aircraft carrier Kaga, there was only a few minutes warning. The Japanese Zeros, which had descended low to eliminate the earlier torpedo bombers, were in no position to intercept our American dive bombers, which hit the Kaga with several bombs, igniting ordnance stacked on her hangar deck and aviation fuel being used to top off the tanks of her aircraft. Secondary explosions rippled along the Kaga's lengthy hangar deck, and within minutes, Japan's largest aircraft carrier was a burning wreck. Three bombers bypassed the Kaga and attacked a second Japanese aircraft carrier, the Akagi. Two bombers scored near misses, but the third thousand-pound bomb hit the Akagi amidships, penetrating into the hangar deck and exploding among 18 fully loaded and fueled torpedo bombers. And one bomb, when placed so perfectly, is enough. Cascading secondary explosion ripped through the second Japanese carrier in the space of minutes. The tables had just turned. But the destruction for the day was still not done. Just as the Enterprise's dive bombers turned back, the Yorktowns arrived and turned the Japanese carrier Shiroyu into an inferno of flame. In less than 10 minutes, American dive bombers had destroyed half of the big carriers in Japan's entire navy. With only one carrier left in the battle, the Japanese struck back. 18 dive bombers protected by six zeros attacked the Yorktown amid furious opposition from the Yorktown's fighters and anti-aircraft fire. Despite putting three bombs into her flight deck, the Yorktown somehow managed to survive. There are a couple reasons for this. One is that the American ships had radar, and thus more warning than the Japanese did, allowing the Yorktown's crew to secure the fuel lines and launch fighters. The second factor is while the Zero was the best fighter in the Pacific at the time, the Japanese dive bombers were not great, and their 550-pound bombs packed only half the punch of their American 1,000-pound equivalents. And finally, American crews were simply much better at damage control than the Japanese, and it showed as the Yorktown, despite massive damage, remained afloat. Later in the afternoon, a second attack with all remaining Japanese torpedo bombers managed to land a torpedo on the side of the wrecked carrier, which was enough for her captain to order an abandoned ship. But still, she did not sink. Crews were eventually sent aboard to evaluate the salvage potential for her, before the coup de grace in the form of three more torpedoes from a Japanese submarine finally put her down as she was being towed back to Pearl Harbor for some very extensive repairs. Meanwhile, despite a strong cover of more than a dozen Zero fighters, an attack by Enterprise and orphaned Yorktown bombers left the final Japanese carrier blazing and the crew was evacuated. Defeat and loss minimization was not in the Japanese mindset, and the rest of the Japanese fleet, now totally without air cover, sailed northeast in a last desperate gamble to rescue the battle by intercepting the American carriers. By now, Admiral Spruance knew that the United States had won a decisive victory, but he was still unsure about what Japanese forces remained. Not wanting to risk a night fight where the Japanese Navy excelled when the odds so clearly favored him during the day, Spruance withdrew to the east and then turned back to west towards the enemy at midnight. For his part, after Yamamoto's remaining surface force failed to make contact with the Americans due to Spruance's brief withdrawal east, Yamamoto ordered a general withdrawal west. The next day, Spruance's forces could not find the main Japanese body 
despite what we know in retrospect were some very close calls. Some straggler Japanese ships were picked off over the next few days, but the Battle of Midway was over. The Battle of Midway was one of the most consequential naval engagements in world history. The loss of four carriers in one day was an absolutely devastating blow to the Japanese Navy, as was the loss of so many of her trained pilots, very few of whom were recovered. The Imperial Japanese Navy was still a dangerous foe after June 4, 1942, but her mobile striking force, which had run absolute roughshod over the Pacific for six months, had been reduced to only two carriers. In just a few minutes of battle, the strategic initiative in the Pacific Theater had passed from the Japanese to the Americans. The final action which turned the course of the war in the Pacific was the Guadalcanal Campaign, fought over the 2,000 square mile, mountainous, rainforest-covered island of Guadalcanal, approximately 1,000 miles northwest of Australia. The importance of Guadalcanal to the Japanese was its position on the sea lanes connecting Australia and Hawaii. And on July 6, 1942, Japanese transports arrived off Guadalcanal's north coast and begun unloading construction and equipment to build an airfield. Admiral King, the commander-in-chief of the United States Fleet and chief of naval operations throughout World War II, received intelligence of the Japanese buildup and announced an extremely ambitious plan to take Guadalcanal before the Japanese airfield could become operational in order to prevent Japanese air superiority over the invasion beaches. All the logistics for the massive amphibious assault, troops for a landing force, the transport ships to carry them, escorts to protect the transports, fuel, supplies, and ammunition, all of that had to be requisitioned in shockingly little time amid shortages of every conceivable war good, and especially shortages of transport ships. The assault became colloquially known as Operation Shoestring. The on-the-ground assault force would consist of a single reinforced Marine Corps division, about 11,000 men, commanded by Major General Vandergrift, and supported from the air by aircraft carriers Enterprise, Saratoga, and Wasp, under the command of Admiral Fletcher. The initial assault on Guadalcanal on August 7th was concealed by cloud cover, and the Marines achieved complete tactical surprise. The outnumbered and outgunned Japanese retreated, and the Marines quickly overran the partially completed airfield and dug out a security perimeter. Within three hours of the initial landing, Japanese planes from a nearby island took off to attack the transport ships, which were just beginning to unload the supplies a long-term Marine force would need to occupy the island. Defended by the three carriers' fighters and escort ships' anti-aircraft fire, the Japanese did little damage, but overenthusiastic pilots reported that they had sunk most of the transports which, as you'll see in a minute, would have major consequences that night. The air power demonstration by the Japanese did have the effect of convincing Admiral Fletcher that Japanese carriers were in the vicinity, and he pulled his covering invasion fleet off the beachhead and put it in a better position to maneuver against the now-expected carrier counterattack. The Marines ashore were, pretty understandably, pissed, but there was not much they could do about it at the moment. The Japanese had every intention of beating the Marines away from the airstrip, and the way to do that was to first destroy the transport fleet and isolate the Marines in an inhospitable jungle. Late on the day of the invasion, the Japanese formed a task force of seven cruisers and a destroyer to disrupt the American material offload on Guadalcanal. The Japanese task force was spotted by reconnaissance aircraft 
but the advance warning was lost and ignored. The Japanese struck just after midnight to shield themselves against American air superiority and because they were excellently trained night fighters. Launching their excellent long lance torpedoes ahead of the assault, the waiting Americans were practically unaware of the Japanese presence until Japanese cruisers opened fire on one searchlight painted target after another. The resulting two-hour fight, known as the Battle of Savo Island, was a humiliating massacre for the American forces. It was so bad, like the Japanese after Midway, that the American government kept the official outcome secret for months. At no cost to their own task force, the Japanese sunk four heavy cruisers and then chose to retreat after their spectacularly successful hit-and-run raid rather than expose their ships to American air power as dawn broke based on their mistaken belief that Japanese air raids had destroyed most of the transports earlier that day. This was fortunate for the Marines ashore, because if the Japanese had pressed the attack, the transports would have just been slaughtered by the powerful cruiser force. The Marines on the island would have probably run out of food and ammunition before more could arrive, and they probably would have either died or spent the next three years as Japanese POWs, which had a 40% chance of being a death sentence itself. While the Battle of Savo Island was a complete tactical victory for the Japanese, it was a strategic miss. Over the course of the next six months, the Marine Corps distinguished itself ashore amid heavy jungle fighting against the fanatical Japanese soldiers. In the air, Japanese raids against the beachhead, Guadalcanal airfield, and ships left their mark. On August 24th, more than two weeks after the initial invasion, the aircraft carrier Enterprise was hit with three bombs and forced to withdraw east for repairs. On the 31st, the carrier Saratoga was badly damaged by a Japanese submarine. Two weeks later, the carrier Wasp was torpedoed and sunk by another Japanese submarine. On October 26th, the carrier Hornet was fatally hit by a Japanese air raid in the Battle of the Santa Cruz Islands. By that time, the Enterprise had been hastily repaired and returned to the fight before being crippled again in the same Battle of the Santa Cruz Islands, in which a combined Japanese Army-Navy operation almost succeeded in dislodging the marine perimeter around the Guadalcanal airfield, which would have transferred the unsinkable aircraft carrier into Japanese hands and quite possibly turned the tide of the campaign. These combined horrific carrier losses meant that the United States temporarily had no fighting carriers in the theater. In the waters around Guadalcanal Island, American air superiority kept the Japanese surface forces away by day. But at the time, effective carrier flight operations could not take place at night, and the American Navy gave way to the Japanese after the sun went down. These Japanese ships delivered supplies, thousands of soldiers, and gunfire support to their forces ashore. These landings were not always unopposed, and American surface search radar was helping close the gap in night fighting ability, leading to some pretty serious Japanese losses but the landings were still regular enough to be grimly nicknamed the Tokyo Express by the Marines ashore. The fighting at sea and ashore continued into November, through December, January, and into February. These desperate night actions at sea were described by the men who fought them as, quote, a barroom brawl with the lights out, and had a level of confusion that led gunners to, quote, find a target and shoot, and then hope it's the enemy. No man can adequately describe the shock and terror and tremendousness of a great naval battle fought at close range in the dead of night, one destroyer executive officer wrote, after a particularly savage night action sparked by a major Japanese attempt to reinforce their troops at Guadalcanal. 
In that battle, American and Japanese battle lines dissolved into a general scum at point-blank range in the black of night, where the only lights came from the piercing glare of spotlights aimed at enemy ships to illuminate them as targets, followed by the red flash of dozens of muzzles, and then followed again by fires aboard the unfortunately well-lit targets. On the night of November 14th, the only action in which Japanese and American battleships fought each other at sea occurred, and more or less ended in a tie. The losses for both sides mounted, and with so many ships, by my own admittedly unofficial count, it combined 49 Japanese and American ships together, lay at the bottom of the waters north of Guadalcanal that it is today known as Iron Bottom Sound. This sort of attritional knife fight was the sort of fight that the American war machine could afford, though, and the Japanese Navy could not. Beginning in mid-December of 1942, the Tokyo Express ran in reverse, extracting the more than 30,000 Japanese soldiers from the island. By February of 1943, the island was, at long last, uncontestably American. And this is where I'm going to leave this episode, on the roughly first half of the war in the Pacific. The Japanese gambled big, and for a while, it seemed like they had won. But the Battle of Midway was a naval disaster for the Japanese, and turned the tide of the war in the Pacific. The Japanese attitude that their sailors, airmen, and ships were qualitatively superior than their American counterparts was reasonably borne out at the beginning of the war. But in the campaigns of the first year or so of the Pacific War, they lost most of their veteran pilots, while the American sailors and pilots were just becoming veterans themselves. More importantly, the American ships laid down in the Two Oceans Act were now coming online, and the tidal wave of tonnage would be followed by an even bigger wartime wave right afterwards. The Japanese were in a bad position, but far, far, far from out of the fight yet. They still held hundreds of Pacific islands dotted with airfields, their so-called unsinkable carriers. Japanese troops were dug in, and quite literally, willing to fight to the last man to defend these specks of land from the United States Marine Corps. In the next episode, I will finish up the war in the Pacific, covering the Battle of the Philippine Sea, sometimes known as the Great Marianas Turkey Shoot, the Battle of Leyte Gulf, and I'm going to zoom in a little on the Marine Corps' role in the island hopping campaign, which culminated in the Battle of Okinawa, where we, the United States, suffered more than 80,000 casualties and a hail of kamikaze attacks, taking the last piece of land necessary to initiate the plan for, but thankfully unnecessary, invasion of the Japanese homeland. As always, if I can ask for a personal favor from a group of strangers, please help me spread the word about the podcast, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and feel free to follow me on Twitter or Instagram at US Navy Podcasts, or send me an email at usnavalhistorypodcast at gmail.com. I've responded to every email I've received so far and love hearing from the people who've enjoyed the show and have suggestions. Thank you, and I'll see you again next week.